Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Arcana Uncorked. The podcast where we uncork some homebrew and discuss whether or not it is right for your game. I'm Patrick. And I'm Andrew. And today on the agenda, we've got a interesting discussion today. We're going to dive into two of the races that come originally from the Player's Handbook that players have kind of talked about a lot, and you know one of them very well for being what is, I guess, the most often... It's not homebrew, I guess. Wizards wrote the variant, but the most often changed race in the player's handbook, the human, as well as the dragonborn. Yeah, both of these races have been noted as being a little bit underwhelming in their basic forms. And there are a number of homebrews that both of us have seen that take stabs at making them better. We're going to show you one for human and one for dragonborn in particular that we use in our campaigns. But know that there is a lot of material written to try and solve these issues, and different authors have taken different tacks at it. Yeah, I think when you look at the homebrew community, these are taking variants of races is a nice stance to take. And especially with these two, I mean, we'll get into the minutia of why each one is kind of underwhelming in and of itself. But these two fall into the category of things that just fall short of the fantasy, I think. In particular, you know, we talk a lot about making meaningful choices, especially when it comes to sub-race or to type different types of feats and features, and neither of them feels like a choice that brings a lot to the table as a player. No, and that's a that's a really good place to start with the idea of race in D&D, because race is not ever going to be the mechanical backbone of what you do in D&D. That's what class is for, and to a lesser extent, background. But race should bring a lot of meaningful information about how your character interacts with the world to the table. Yeah, I think, you know, we've seen, especially over the last, you know, nine months, whenever they announced that there was going to be a revision to the race rules included with Tasha's, we've seen a lot of discussion in the community. And really, even for, you know, years before that, there have been a lot of people who have homebrewed away and talked about the difference between race as a way of defining certain species elements, like things like physical characteristics, height, weight, relative intelligence which is definitely one of the more controversial ones Uh, and then also the idea of culture where you capture things that might be not necessarily like universal to the like the dna but it's just something they do like wood elves being able to shoot longbows and shortbows right like that's the kind of thing that that it doesn't make sense that they pop out of the womb ready to fire away but it's inherent to the culture Yeah, so racial traits don't usually make a distinction between these two ideas. Technically, if you were to play a wood elf that was raised by dwarves, they would still be proficient in longbows, despite the fact that that is a significantly undwarven weapon. Yeah, and so that's, I mean, I think that's where a lot of the interesting and, to be quite frank, valid critique of the pre-existing racial traits kind of out of 5e and D&D historically falls a little short of where do you draw the distinction between things that your character knows naturally versus things that your character is better at for natural reasons and then culturally things that they would only know because of their heritage and I've seen a number of homebrews have tried to like rebuild the race system completely that tries to like separate these entirely where it's like all right you have some features like dark vision that come from your bloodline you have other things that can come from your cultural heritage and that can be different and you might even have hybrid cultural heritage so there's a lot of ways to kind of navigate that space 
but I think looking at it from the original back in the day before Tasha's was even a thing, you run into some interesting questions of what do cultures look like for races like humans that are supposed to be very stereotypical or for dragons that, you know, by and large are creatures. And now you have like this like hybrid creature. Yeah, I've seen a couple, as you mentioned, interesting takes on the idea of heritage. I think one that I'm just going to draw attention to is the Pathfinder 2 tact. Pathfinder 2 is a system. We've played a little bit of it and generally decided that we're going to stick to 5e, but I like a lot of the things that it tried to do. And one of them is with its heritage system, you have the race you are, really your species, but then all the cultural traits that might be associated with your species are put into feats you take during character advancement. So you get to choose what aspects of your race's culture you have actually been exposed to and are taking on. Yeah, and I think I one of the things I really enjoyed when I was building out my character for that, I'm pretty sure I made a gnome artificer. Uh, alchemist, right? Alchemist, you're right. Yeah, I was a bomber. But like thinking back about the gnome thing, you know, they're, they have different things like, oh, you can have like everything from the feyest of the fey gnomes, which fey gnomes in a lot of settings have this kind of fey heritage. So you can have things like that, or you can go with a more traditional rock gnome or underdark gnome. And instead of being like the, the distinct sub races that exist in this 5e, it's like, no, actually, I, well, I can pick and choose some of those things. And the sub race still matters. There is like a kind of a sub race component. But everything isn't locked behind a specific shield, which, you know, obviously can create some interesting things when you have two characters from the same race and you have to kind of reconcile some cultural difference between them. But in my opinion, that makes for more engaging group setting formation when you have character creation more actively informing where your characters come from instead of like the DM says this is a town and this is how everybody in that town is, period. Hmm. And honestly, uh, allowing a bit more flexibility with uh, the cultural component of racial traits allows for better world building, too, because you're not locked into these uh, very Tolkien-esque fantasy traits for each of your races, necessarily. Which is to say, in this episode, we are not going to be dissecting the entirety of building races in D&D and trying to separate the, like evolved traits from the cultural ones. But what we will be doing with the human first is we'll be looking at a take on sub-races that really focuses on the cultural side of things, and then for the dragonborn, a take that really focuses on the physical differences between different types of dragonborn. Yep, two different ways of kind of dissecting it up and building it out. Both of them faithful to the 5e concept that they all fall into the same stack, but taking that in two different directions. It's worth noting that when we talk about racial traits, I touched before on like proficiency with certain types of weapons, for example, is a good option. Uh, Racial traits aren't often meant to represent every member of a race, right? So not every elf is ready to do that. But when you are going through character creation, you're creating at least a first level character who is capable of adventuring. You have more hit points than a commoner, your stats may or may not be better depending on your stat choice system so there's an expectation that you are kind of an exemplar of that race slash cultural heritage that gets represented in the racial traits 
Yeah, so I think that helps suspension of disbelief a lot when you're talking about racial traits. Not every high elf knows how to cast a wizard cantrip, but anyone with their adventuring salt has figured out a tiny bit of magic, maybe. So those are things you can talk about when we get in. And then I guess the last major note that we should touch on before we jump in is that we touched on this when we discussed the fey races a couple episodes back, but races are more interesting to balance and the fact that there are a lot of ways that you can evaluate them and there is a point system out there that you can kind of use to trade off certain features. So there's been a lot of kind of work done to balance these and overall we'll talk about the balance a little bit but I'd say that it's not a huge concern and there are ways to help players trade away features of their race that they might not want to have or to sculpt it more appropriately in your campaign. So I would just take a look around and see what other people have done to adjust things. I know, for example, one of the players in our campaign, Emma, plays Alba, who's a water canasi, and she wanted to switch out one of her skills that way that she could have fishing tools proficiency. And I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so we like took a look at the race and we're like, okay, well, what can we change here to make that appropriate without making you overpowered relative to all the other level threes? Yeah, and uh, worth noting, we use a alternate water ganasi so when we say switching out skills don't yell at us water ganasis don't get racial skills we know yeah yeah uh, we'll talk about volo's guide to sub races at some point yeah that's one of those ones that really sits in the back of our homebrew library and it just kind of floats there because like yeah we use it but only during character creation and then it goes back in the box yeah races in general are one of those ones where because they only come up right away at the start when you're like putting pen to paper it can be easy to not think about them for too long and some most of the time that's fine because races don't change over time but gives you a chance to think about it every once in a blue moon when you do roll a new character so let's roll over and into talking about humans in D. i think it's a reasonably obvious thing to say that humans are meant to be kind of the generic race by which other races are judged in D&D, which is why their stats in their original form are so incredibly boring. It's, I mean, you don't get more boring than plus one to everything. It, it, it means, just when we talk about the meaningful choices thing, it's like, you don't get a meaningful choice because you are average. The other problem that I have with it is... You might think, okay, plus one to all six abilities, that's equivalent to a plus six, like total, and most races get a plus three and then a smattering of other things. But it's really not, because most characters only care about two or three, maybe four, if they're very multiple attribute dependent of those abilities, uh, ability scores. So, I don't know, a barbarian having a plus one to intelligence just isn't a useful thing so it actually turns out to be pretty underpowered yeah it's i mean it's one of those things that i think if you're building a particular type of character who is going to be versatile and maybe a smaller party uh think about like a rogue you know skill monkey that kind of thing becomes kind of useful i guess in that you're not rolling as many like minus ones on your skill checks or saving throws so it's not useless but it's very vanilla in a way that only benefits a very particular play style yeah 
And then we talk about the other published human, which, in my opinion, is... It does give a meaningful choice, but it's still pretty boring, and instead of being underpowered, is perhaps overpowered. Yes. This, of course, the variant human, where instead of a plus one to all stats, you just get a free feat. Yeah, uh, this is based on the 3.5 human that got a free feat. The problem is, is that feats in 3.5 were a dime a dozen, and feats in 5e are not that. Yeah, it's worth noting that the feat system, if you read through the player's handbook, is described as technically an optional rule. I think for a lot of tables, especially because it's in the player's handbook, like it's it's one of the few times where an optional rule is like flat out listed in its own section that takes up like 20 pages of the player's handbook. You're not going to find a lot of tables that aren't using feats. But the problem is because there was a weird thing in the wizard psychology maybe that happened where because it's an optional feat, the balance of these things can be incredibly bar- like varied. Yeah, and it is a compelling option for a lot of people to want to take Variant Human at first level because there are a fair few martial combat styles that just kind of depend on feats to be viable. Crossbow Expert, Shrapshooter, Polar Master, Great Weapon Master. If you really want to be getting your most bang for the buck out of being a martial, these feats are almost required in some places. But also, you can totally just take, you know, the get an extra tool, language, and skill human feat from Xanathar's, and those two things are not equal. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing, and I ultimately would love to see, like, there's a lot of feats out there that are homebrew. We'll talk about some homebrewed feats someday. And I think there's some value in the feat system, and I think it's great, but I think it's a lazy and boring way of trying to get out of how bland the plus ones are that enables some play styles and also just completely ruins others like why honestly if i was a spellcaster i don't know why i would want to be human just straight up i I totally understand that there's very little that it does for them and obviously you shouldn't be choosing your race entirely on mechanics but the whole point of races having mechanics in the first place is there is a playstyle benefit. You know, I'm an ancient elf wizard, and the fact that I'm an elf wizard as opposed to a human wizard has a small palpable difference. Yeah, I think there's a way that you can build the flavor of your character off those mechanics, because they feed back on each other, especially on a subconscious level, but even then, the way that you express your abilities... It's not just that you know how to use this tool, it's that you learned this from XYZ thing. It it gives you a place to jump off of, and while feats can give you that sort of, it doesn't tie you back to others in your community the way that other racial feats do. Yeah. So, what do we do with humans? Because it's hard to give them a flat bonus to all humans, because... Anything that you say that humans are particularly good at, by definition, every other fantasy race is suddenly deficient in, which is weird. Humans are supposed to be the baseline. Yeah, there is a difficult line to tread where you want to make them interesting, but also they are the point of reference for everything else because we know what it's like to be a human, but we probably don't know what it's like to be an elf, so... Everything else is based on context, and if every if an average human is a 10 at everything, 
then the second that you change that it's a 10 at everything, you're changing the barometer. Yeah. So that brings us rather cleanly to this homebrew, which takes the idea of humans and says, okay, we can't say blanket that every human is really good at this, so let's split them into generic cultural groups. And this homebrew is Environmental Humans by user Aaron Drake. Yeah. So what we'll see as we go through these, the basic premise is that the in addition to having like some basic human characteristics, really the bulk of your racial features come from your subrace. And your subrace is based on an environment in which you grew up in, which ultimately shaped the culture of the group that you came from. So, you know, even though they are all labeled for the environment that it is in, really at the end of the day, the goal of the subrace is to try and extract what a culture that grew up in that environment looks like through, you know, kind of some level of like stereotyping, but also like looking at anthropological things and building out that subrace as a model culture or an archetypal culture of that environment. And I love this for two reasons. A, it builds humans as infinitely adaptable, which I really feel like is the core feature of humanity in any fantasy game, is that they're everywhere and they can like live anywhere just fine because they're so adaptable. And second, having these generic cultures really opens up to world building because you're like okay desert born humans are by and large like this let's uh talk about this very specific to your fantasy world desert culture that they come from yeah i think in general it has a really nice way of building actual world building into humans which it otherwise you know doesn't sort of exist i know in the actual player's handbook race you know you have the description that comes after the actual like race description that describes like all of these sub races of people that like it doesn't have any mechanical benefit but they try and go into things like skin tone and builds and things like that and name different naming conventions it's supposed to in some way kind of i guess mirror an ethnic diaspora of people it's also very specifically the forgotten realms <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it kind of boxes you in. I could speak just for an hour on its own about Wizards' incessant desire to have us adventure in the Sword Coast. They, uh, they're really proud of that setting. And it's not a bad setting, but um, the game has grown a lot past that. Yeah, but I also liked when there was a choice between Greyhawk, The Forgotten Realms, Eberron, uh, Ravenloft, you know... Yeah. Back when Drexon was an officially supported thing. Uh, yes. gosh. I, I know a lot of people, I saw this great speculation thread the other day about uh, people wondering what's going to come at the end of 2021. And I think OP said like, oh yeah, I'm hoping for another setting one. And I think a lot of people are like, yeah, I feel like we're either due for a spell jammer or a dark sun. And a lot of people were gunning for Dark Sun, so uh, Wizards, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you already have made a decision, and you're probably not listening to this, but I think the audience is hungry. It, literally any one of the wacky ones. Yes, please. I, we all love high fantasy, don't get me wrong, but like, 
there's something to be said for breaking the mold and giving players a chance to react to something that's just wild. And especially for those older settings that haven't gotten as much publicity with the like newer 5e audience that's really joined the game in the last decade or so. And it's a great time mm-hmm. to expose people to like the weird shit that D&D did in the 90s, you know. Yeah. But getting back to it. So there are, I think, six sub-races in this document. Desertborn, Forestborn, Mountainborn, Plainsborn, Seaborn, and Winterborn. So again, these very general biome ideas. And the document makes basically some presuppositions about what people from those areas will be like. And we're going to talk about two of them real quick. We won't go through the whole document, but it will be linked below. Uh, the first of which being the desert-born human. Yes, desert-born. So the description here, you come from a martial culture of nomadic warriors. Most of them travel for days through the desert with light equipment to be fast and agile while moving, scouting and fighting. Their skin can range from light brown to black, and they are well-known for being well-muscled. So immediately they're kind of jumping in on, I think, this, like, Egyptian Saharan, you're a nomad traveling across the land, and you want to be... One, resilient to heat, and two, well-equipped with the ability to survive out in the wild for periods of time, which is reflected in the features that are listed underneath. Yeah, so you get a plus two to dexterity, which is combined with the basic human racial trait of getting a plus one to one ability score that isn't the one increased by your subrace, so you don't get a plus three. And this is... A common theme for all of these. They'll get their free plus one anywhere, and then they'll get a plus two in something specific to their subrace. They also get proficiency in two skills, athletics and survival in this case, doubling down on this idea of a martial culture that lives in a reasonably fresh environment. I, I think that's a it's a nice model, and the, the template kind of carries through to the others as well. Most of them get two either skill or tool proficiencies and then they get a plus two to a certain attribute and it's a good way of because there are so many of the options it's a great way of saying okay look some humans are better at some things than others but on the average the average human has like a plus one to one stat and nothing else in particular yeah they're born in the desert which is just resistance to extreme heat And also, you can choose to just, once per long rest, not gain a level of exhaustion when you otherwise would. Niche ability, but really powerful in certain instances. Yeah, exhaustion, I think, is one of those conditions that I've tried to use a lot more in the last couple of months of play. And is, I mean, in one, it's nice because you've got an actual progressive system. It's one of the only cases where it's actually progressive conditions that get worse and worse over time. But being able to just drop one once per long rest can really help you if your DM is exhaustion happy and you need to just, like, keep moving. Especially because the first tick is disadvantage on skill and ability checks. Or just skill checks, I guess. I think it's all ability checks, which includes skill checks. That's true. Okay. Um, So that can save you in the right circumstance. Yeah. Thing for DMs, and we've probably already mentioned this. Nothing scares a person with 140 hit points who feels unkillable like suddenly feeling like they only have six. Those six being the levels of exhaustion. (laughs) Because no matter how powerful you are, six kills you. Yes. 
the last bit of the Desert Born is Dune Warrior. You have proficiency with light armor, scimitars, whips, and short bows. When you score a critical hit with any of these weapons, you can roll one of the weapon's damage dies one additional time and add it to the extra damage of the critical hit. I like that they went a step beyond just have proficiency with weapons and added on this additional, like, brutal critical, essentially. I think it's it does lead to like a little bit of balance concerns of like oh okay how does that compare to an elf who only gets those you know gets four proficiencies but doesn't get extra damage when they use them so i think desertborn tends to be a bit stronger than some of the other races but it's it's got a lot more flavor to it It makes a more meaningful choice yeah and i can see definitely why aaron drake has done this because i personally hate proficiencies in racial traits because they don't give anything to the players that actually want them. Players who would be playing marshals already have those proficiencies, and players that are not playing marshals traditionally have cantrips or something else that would work just as well, if not better. Yeah, it's a good point. You don't Giving proficiencies to someone who's going to already have proficiency just feels like a wasted trait. So this says, okay, if you have the proficiency already, I still have something for you here. And to be honest, yeah, lighter ammo is fine for casters, um, if you don't want to yeah. waste your spells on major ammo, which low levels you might not. You know, it can turn your effective, if you're willing to spend the gold on, like, the nicest armor, it turns your effective AC from, AC cap from a 15 to an 18, and even then, you know, depending on what sort of caster you are, you're probably not going to get to a 20 dexterity anytime soon. Although this plus 2 does help you. 15 to a 17, I think. Top quality studded leather is AC 12. Is it really? Oh. Yeah, uh, Major Ammo is technically a step more effective major than Best Lighter Ammo. That's right. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, wacky. so this is, even, this is not even going to take you past Mage Armor, which is almost a given that a lot of casters going into the field will take, so... So next we're going to briefly talk about the Plainsborn human, which I'm picking out mostly because there are two of them in the current party that Pat is running. Yeah, one of them is yours, uh, Sorvir the Scion, and then the other is uh, Kasara, who is our arcane archer slash wizard. So the idea that the author of this homebrew had for Plainsborn humans is that they are kind of the ultimate innovators and craftsmen. So they get a bonus to intelligence, plus two, in the style of the subraces. They get two skills of their choice, and they gain proficiency in one Radisson's tool of their choice, and basically are able to use that Radisson's tool twice as quickly as you otherwise would. I like this. I mean, for there's a number of reasons that's kind of nice. One, having an intelligence race is nice because there aren't too many of those. Also... It takes the crafting side and takes it away from pretty much gnomes are the only ones who get a legitimate strong benefit. I think you get some stuff with dwarf with like, I guess, just your knowledge of stone, but it actually makes crafting built into a feature set, which for you has come in handy as you've kind of delved into alchemy stuff and we've gotten to play around with that. Kasara, not quite as much, but... The tool I chose for this feature is actually my cartography tools. Uh, right. Not my alchemy. Ugh. I use been alchemy at normal speed, but that I've basically spun that into Pat letting me make maps as we walk. Yes, he does get to sell to the cartographer's guild. Nice, nice little cash, especially when you're remapping a desolated world. 
Yeah. And, and this is one of those abilities that is entirely dependent on how vigorous uh, your DM uses crafting. Well, I know a lot of people have homebrew rules on crafting. We'll talk about them eventually. But if you're choosing this, obviously, talk to your DM and see how much they want to deal with crafting. Because if they're completely blowing off the little of the crafting system that does exist in the core material, then this feature may not really be for you. Yeah, if it's one of those things where your DM's not in crafting so much, I would try and talk to them about creating an alternative feature. Maybe pulling something from one of the others listed here, or even, I mean, finding something from another race. The last note I want to make about the alternate humans is a couple of the ones we didn't talk about seem to pull from other races pretty heavily. The forest-born human is kind of an elf light, and the mountain-born human is very much a goliath light. But definitely with the tilt of having these as cultural traits rather than physical ones, for the most part. Yeah, I think it it shows another way of getting to the same destination that helps bring a little more life to the human in general. So, uh, that is the environmental human. That is currently the human that we tend to recommend in our campaigns. Although it is by far not the only homebrew revision to the already revised human. Yes, uh... There are a lot of options out there. I'd highly recommend kind of exploring what you want to do. But if you've never broadened your horizons beyond the plus ones or the feats, I would just highly encourage it because I think it you'll have more fun building your character if you can actually do that. And if you're worried about not being able to, like, for example, if you really want to play with pole arms that are pretty much kind of useless if you don't take pole arm master. I mean, one, pole arm master is really strong and you should talk to your DM about that. But too i mean you might want to talk about everyone getting a free feat at the start of the game yeah that's a big power jump but it also might be necessary to make your play style possible so i have a hundred percent heard that getting a free feat at first level being called uh dnd 5e new game plus because it's a rule that a lot of people end up with in their second campaigns either you don't start at level one or you start with a feat or both but yeah. I, I find few people are willing to start from ground zero after a first game. Yeah. So, moving on, we're going to talk about the Dragonborn. There isn't as much to say about why the Dragonborn needs revision. It's really three features that I have, my understanding is, the community mostly agrees on. Uh, the first of these is that the breath weapon is completely underwhelming, even at first level, but especially as characters advance. Yeah, it doesn't scale very well over time. Like, really, at the end of the day, you have to use an entire action for it. And as you trade up your action to be able to hit more times or evolved cantrips, the fact that your breath weapon doesn't scale with you over time means that it quickly becomes a bad option more than it becomes a silly option. It's like, at some point, it's only useful if you happen to have a lot of people in a line and you don't have a spell that you can use to hit the ball otherwise. Yeah. Uh, the next two issues are... After Volos, a lot of people started asking why lizard folk had natural armor, but Dragonborn didn't. Presumably, dragon scales are much more sturdy than lizard folk scales. Yeah, I can't tell if this was, like, an oversight 
or if it was an intentional choice, because they haven't really eroded it back, which I almost kind of would expect at some point, but they've had a few opportunities and haven't gone back to it. Luckily, it's an easy fix to make, although you have to check out your budget for power. The third thing is honestly not even really a power level or character building issue. It's just kind of a like, this seems like a design oversight issue, and that's that there are very clearly 10 easy sub-races to make out of the Dragonborn, and they decided to make it a non-sub-raced race. Now, I know some people are already typing... I know Dragonborn are not strictly descended each from one type of dragon, and that Dragonborn, in general, have mixed to a degree that their draconic lineage is sometimes questionable where exactly most of it came from. Uh, That said, I think it's perfectly reasonable that there are Dragonborn that take more after green dragons or red dragons. Yeah, and another counterpoint to that is... They still make you choose a damage type. It's not like the player's handbook Dragonborn just doesn't make you make any choice. They make you make a specific choice and then leave everything else kind of out in the wild. It's like, that's cheap, I think, weirdly. I agree, absolutely. So the solution to these things comes in the form of the Greater Dragonborn by Kel Reader. This is an extremely popular homebrew. You may well have heard of it before. But it takes a stab at fixing all of these problems, and it does so pretty simply and pretty elegantly, in my opinion. Let's just get the two easy ones out of the way first, and then we can talk about the subrace thing. Yeah, so easy ones. For all Dragonborn, you have natural armor. Uh, you have tough scaly skin. Uh, when you aren't wearing armor, your AC is calculated as 13 plus dex. And you can use your natural armor to determine your AC if the armor you would wear would leave you with a lower AC. So this is, I mean, yeah, it's just natural armor pretty much ported over from the lizard folk. It's become clear that 13 plus AC is the calculation for player natural armor, unless they, it is a significantly weird race. Yeah, it because uh, it lands you again. If you wanted to build to max, it builds you to 18. Yes, that is like, you know, what you're going to get out of mage armor or plate armor if you're like maxing everything out. But like that, I mean, they, that comes at the sacrifice of a feature. So that's, you know, it's, if it's part of the power budget, I think that's fine. And your average player starting at level one is not going to have a 20 dex unless they are really, really pushing some sort of decks only build so no our players in general have been a little spoiled with having enough ability points to really get decent armor classes at low levels <laughs> ataraxia bad <laughs> <laughs> greater dragonborn as it turns out yeah she she rolled really well yeah she has ridiculous stats and therefore her armor was extremely good despite not specking into decks almost at all it's you're gonna have like probably like a 15 AC starting off, and that is perfectly reasonable. And if you really want to wear heavier armor to increase that, go for it. Dragonborn's excel as marshals. Yeah, which I think, I think makes sense. Uh, you know, a dragon is in of itself a up-close-and-personal violent creature, so having that kind of thing there, I mean, whether or not they're violent by nature is one thing or another, but they're meant to excel in, like, physical combat. 
Yeah, so the second thing is just a very simple bump of the dragon's breath weapon. Uh, it's the same area, but it does 2d6 damage initially, same as the normal dragonborn. And then that damage goes to 46 at 5th, 66 at 11th, and 86 at 17th. Uh, the normal one caps out at 5d6. So you're doing a very small fireball instead of a very small, like, agonizer scorcher. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it just solves the problem that we saw before, where you just don't feel like it's a good use of your action economy. It's like, for example, if you're a... If you're a fighter now, and, you know, thinking about doing this even against one creature, if you hit them with a short sword four times, you know, this is going to outdamage that. So even against one target, you, like, have some sort of incentive to take it, although you don't add your, obviously, if you're a fighter at a high level, you're adding, like, plus 20 from your dexterity or whatever. But the damage math is so much better. Yeah, it's better, I think. It definitely doesn't outdamage most of your options, even as a marshal, but I think it has the use case of clumped people, and they don't have to be nearly as clumped for that use case to be viable as it did in the previous uh, Player's Handbook base version. So a simple fix. I've also seen Dragonborn fixes that don't change the damage, but make it a bonus action to use. My understanding is the damage math works for that as well, but I just feel like I like the idea of it being this big exhalation that actually takes the action to do, rather than this whimpery little puff of flame that you do in addition to everything else you're doing in a round. It helps echo the relationship between Dragonborn and Dragons, because even though they aren't the same, this breath weapon is supposed to evoke the same thing, and I think having the same action economy makes it parallel, makes you really feel like a dragon. Yeah. So... Then we come to the subbase thing, uh, which this does to a T. It has the ten metallic and chromatic subbases, uh, and additional colors kind of in an addendum at the bottom, including the gem dragons, platinum dragons, which are a thing, I guess, purple and steel, which I know are things from older editions, even though they don't exist in official material right now. Yeah, so it's nice. It's a they do a good job of both accounting for the history of dragons as well as like being authentic to the the core ten. Each of them comes with three features. Uh, the first one is a plus two stat budget. So each one gets its own thing. For example, black dragons get plus two to constitution green dragons get plus two to charisma and that proliferates down in various amounts sometimes it's two to one stat sometimes it's one and one yeah um because the base dragonborn gets a plus one to strength so if you're getting a strength bonus from your sub race too it's one to strength and one to something else up to a two in strength and a one in something else when taken as a whole and this is great because, honestly, the two to strength and one to constitution that is the base dragonborn really locks them into a corner in terms of what sort of classes you can effectively play. Obviously, with Tasha's, you can change that all right up, but let's pretend for a moment that we're not in that world. Yeah, you, you kind of want to build like a barbarian or a fighter, maybe a paladin. Everything else, you are like, your stats just don't support you that much because strength is really only good for like those three 
classes. But literally, there is a type of dragon in this document that gets its racial bonus to every stat. It's plus two to... You can find a plus two to dexterity or a plus two to intelligence by choosing the right color of dragonborn. So if you are playing really focused on character ability, maximizing your effectiveness character, this gives you that option really well. Uh, the second feature for every sub-race is a description of the breath weapon. Specifically, it tells you, one, what type of saving throw someone has to make against your breath. For all of the base 10 sub-races, like the, you know, the normal chromatics and metallics, uh, it is either a dexterity save or a con save. The con save's coming for, think, like your poison damage or your frost damage, so like green dragons, silver dragons, and then dexterity for everything else you do have for the additional ones like the gemstone dragon it is a intelligence saving throw and for the purple dragon it's a wisdom saving throw because you've got psychic going on so there's some variation down there it also in addition to the type of saving throw it also specifies what type of damage you do which is what you'd expect and you also have resistance to that same type of damage yeah so ultimately very similar to the player's handbook, I will note here that rather than prescribing whether your breath weapon is a line or a cone, you actually get that choice when you exhale, which I know is not strictly in line with how dragons work, but let's be honest, a 15-foot cone is strictly superior in most cases to a 30-foot line. So this is trying to make sure that certain dragons aren't, dragonborn aren't obviously weaker because of that. Yeah, I've always been a little surprised that that was a thing for dragons between dragons. Is like, oh, some of them are lines, some of them are cones. I know I've like made that mistake before, being like, oh, this is the line or cone. And I guess like there's like a little bit of thing to consider as far as flavor. I think both of them have their place, but for the player's sake, I I feel like there is a good reason to give them flexibility. It's not going to impact much. No, absolutely not. And then this third ability um, is the one that most changes. A lot of the third abilities for the Dragonborn sub-races are simply proficiency in a skill. Golds get proficiency in insight. Rass get proficiency in persuasion. But some of them are a little bit weirder. Black Dragonborn are brutal and cruel and add their con modifier to the damage of their breath weapon. And bronze dragonborns get a swim speed, because of course they do. Yeah. I mean I, I like this. It's a it's another way of trying to I guess sort of almost like bake in this cultural element, really. This is the piece that is not inherent to your physical skill, but I think generally is more tied to the cultural understandings of what certain types of dragons are. You know, you have the idea that green dragonborns are deceptive, so of course they have proficiency in deception. I think this is the one feature where you have the most opportunity to bend it if your dragons don't line up lore-wise with the standard interpretations. I know in our world we try and get away from that a little bit. Yeah, I hate the idea that players can metagame alignments by the color of your dragon, so... We've thrown that out the window. That said, in worlds where you maintain that sort of dichotomy, I think this could be argued that this is like 
an evolutionary trait because dragons are so steeped in magic that their alignments and personalities are kind of fixed based on their type. Yeah, you, you, I think it's a good conversation to have with your DM anyway about what dragons are like in the world and the way that dragonborns are reflective or deflective of those types of inherent properties. Mm-hmm. This race, the greater dragonborn, is definitely like much more closely connected to the lore of dragons than the original dragonborn, which... Obviously, the intent of the player's handbook, Dragonborn, was to be similar to dragons, but not directly connected with them. But this one definitely is like, no, you're mostly a small humanoid dragon running around. I think I appreciate that. I think, like we started the whole race conversation with, there's a lot that goes into how you tie these things together. But at the end of the day, race is oftentimes for characters going to be the element of their character building experience that ties them most into the setting so the more that you can do to make those features engage with the setting the more opportunities your character is going to have to role play that yeah i find that my choice of race when i'm building characters is often kind of settles once and for all exactly how my character will be just based on you know to an extent, the stereotypes of those races and whether I'm deciding to go along with them or buck them wildly. Yeah, and that's, a, that's a good point. I think especially when we talk about race and, I mean, one, you want to avoid stereotypes that, like, echo modern racial dynamics. I think there's an, there's an element that you want to avoid those. But to the extent that there are stereotypes for races in your campaigns that hopefully are non-problematic, you know, that's not only a suggestion but it can also be a suggestion to branch off of and the ways that you break those molds are in and of themselves interesting character choices yeah again there is nothing wrong with stereotypes that don't make people at your table uncomfortable so have a talk with them and then play your weirdly abstinent from alcohol dwarf i'm trying to think of other ways that like ben i mean you know for one i mean the uh, eco-terrorist elf is always a fun fun option. Yeah, which isn't even really, like, breaking the stereotype. It's just taking it, like, in a bit of a different direction. Yeah. If you want to build a, a dragonborn who's really against hoarding things, you know, the kind of person who is maybe playing the Robin Hood of robbing hordes and distributing things, things like that. All sorts of fun to be had. Yeah, but hopefully you guys will take a look at these homebrews and maybe give them a try. I feel like more uh, human and dragonborn PCs is definitely a necessary thing because we, in our current campaign, have had a ton of fun with specifically these two homebrews. Yep, highly recommend. Uh, This is a a pretty easy thing to recommend you add to your campaign. If at a minimum, gets you interested in breaking out and thinking of ways that you can make all of your races more appealing options for characters so no one feels like they're ideal concept is putting them either behind or is boring so andrew what are we thinking about talking about next week well next week is going to be a special episode as all of these initial episodes are because we keep talking about things we've never even touched on before but we will be talking about what we are calling rules potpourri basically 
Pat and I have a lot of things that we do a bit differently than the Player's Handbook and the Dungeons Master's Guide might officially recommend. Some of these are pretty obvious. Some of them have been suggested by other uh, content and homebrew creators. Uh, some of them are things we just kind of made up and seem to work for our group. And we're going to talk about a bunch of these, and uh, maybe you'll pick one or two house rules up that you like. Yeah, and these are these are the kind of things that you'll find all over the internet, and there are things that even Andrew and I disagree about from time to time. So I think there's going to be plenty of interesting conversation. Uh, you know, sharpen your pitchforks and buy some flowers to mail to your favorite podcast host. Get ready to disagree with us, because there are a few hot takes in here. <laughs> all right, well, that wraps it up for us. Uh, I've been Patrick. And I've been Andrew. Adios. Bye.